chapter 23, page 722 uh, is where we're going to be. And so, you know, I don't know if, if you're like me or not, but, but one of my least favorite things in life is, is having to wait. Like, I, I don't like waiting on anything. Like, I'm the type, if I show up at a restaurant and there's a long wait, I'm like, let's just go find somewhere else to eat. Even if this is the best place to eat, it's not worth the wait for me. I don't, I don't want to stick around. I hate, like, waiting there. It's, it's the reason I hate going to doctor's offices, because they have a whole room that is built and designed for you to wait in, you know? And so it's, if it's called the waiting room, that's the only thing you're going to do when you're there. And so you move from the big waiting room, and then they put you in that smaller waiting room with less magazines, and so it's even worse. And so, you know, it's what happens when you go to the doctor. It's, it's what happens every time uh, that you, you go to get the tags on your car renewed, right? And you have to get that emissions test. And it doesn't matter what day of the week you go, what time of day. It's like, I always find the perfect time to find the biggest line. You know, I, uh, I get there and, and, and you have to wait. It's the reason I'm not a big fan of Disney World, which I know is like heresy for some of you. Um, you know, I'm sorry. Like, you know, but at, at Disney, it's like, all you do is wait. You get in line for a ride, and it's like 91 minutes to get on whatever ride it is. And you know how it works at Disney, right? You're in the line, and you're snaking back and forth, and you can see the end. You're like, the ride's there. It's just around that corner. But what happens when you get around the corner? There's another room, like another line. It's like purgatory for families. Like, you know, you're just back and forth, waiting and waiting and waiting. And I don't know if you're like me, but I, I hate waiting. I don't like waiting on, on anything. And there's times in life when waiting is just kind of inconvenient uh, or, or kind of annoying, but th- there's times in life when, when waiting is, is painful and is frustrating and is confusing. I think about uh, the, the wait when my mom, she had had all of the surgery she could have, she had finished her last round of chemo, and then we had to wait for three days to get those test results back. And that space in between, like the waiting, like just so painful. You know, it's what some of you have felt as you're trying to decide or you're trying to figure out whether or not your spouse is going to give you a second chance after you just told them everything that you'd been up to over the last season. After you'd shattered that covenant and you're like trying to figure out if there's going to be hope on the other side of this moment. It's what some of you have felt in different seasons of life when the career crashed or when the job fell through or when the chemo didn't work. Or, or, or when the divorce went through and then they got remarried and you find yourself in this space, like this, this in-between. You're not where you used to be. You're not where you want to be. You're like somewhere in the middle and you're just in this place of waiting. And have you ever, have you ever noticed that sometimes like waiting can, can be the most confusing and, and, and painful stuff? And, and this is so true in the kingdom of God. That there are times when we, we find ourselves in between the promises that God has made and the moment in which God will keep those promises that he's made. And there's something really challenging and confusing and painful about being in that space between that, that waiting between a promise made and a promise kept. You know, those, those moments where you pray and the prayer hasn't yet been answered. The, the moment when you feel like the father in Luke 15 and you're standing on the horizon waiting for the son to return home. The moment where you're wondering whether or not God actually pulls this one off. Because have you ever noticed there are moments in life when even your circumstances feel beyond the power and the provision of God himself. And and this is the picture. This is the moment that unfolds in in Luke 23. I think in order to understand kind of the backdrop of the story that we're gonna look at, you have to understand that the whole story is set in the uncomfortable reality of a people that have been waiting. And for thousands of years, the the people of God, they've been waiting for this Messiah to come. 
They've been waiting for God to come and make things all right. They've been waiting for God to come and to, to put an end to all brokenness, to all sin, to all oppression. And then Jesus shows up and Jesus begins to do all of the things that they've been expecting. He's raising the dead. He's healing the sick. He's curing the blind. He's casting out demons. He's turning the religious world on its head. And, and the disciples, the followers are going, man, the one that we've been waiting on is here. And there's that moment that we looked at last week where it seems like the waiting is done. They've, they've turned the corner at Disney World. They think they're getting ready to get on the ride, the thing that they've been leaning into. And they come into Jerusalem, the place where the Messiah was supposed to be crowned, but the story takes a massive U-turn. It goes in a direction they didn't anticipate. It says they walk into Jerusalem and Jesus is brutally beaten. He's arrested. He's mocked. He's scorned. He's killed. And he's laid in a tomb that he doesn't own. And all of a sudden, the disciples go from one season of waiting into another. They find themselves between a promise made and a promise kept. And the weight of the moment, the weight of the moment is tough to get their hearts around. And I think it's difficult for us 2,000 years later in a place as comfortable as this to sit here and read these stories and to, to feel the weight of what they were in that Saturday morning. But I want you to put your, yourself in their shoes, that, that, that place between the agony of the crucifixion on a Friday and the joy of the resurrection on a Sunday. They find themselves in the stillness of a Saturday morning asking the question, God, where are you in the space between? And this morning, I just want us to wrestle with this one question, and that is, what does it look like to live faithfully to God when you find yourself somewhere in between? Like, like, what's it look like to be faithful to God when you're between a promise made and a promise kept? What does it look like to be faithful to God when you find yourself in this place of waiting? Because the truth is, although all of us want to live out of the joy of Resurrection Sunday, a lot of us find ourselves navigating the reality and the stillness of Saturday. And I want you to see their story as it unfolds. It's going to start in verse 50, Luke 23, verse 50. It starts like this. It says, now there was a man named Joseph who was a member of the council, who was a good and upright man, and he had not consented to their decision and their action. And so I want you to stop here for just a moment. If you remember the story last week, we were looking at the cross, and there is this group of leaders of both religious and political leaders that were a part of this group called the council, and they had used kind of the system that Rome had put in place, this Roman execution system to wrongfully accuse and arrest and put Jesus to death. This, these council members had, had worked the system to get what they wanted. But I love what Luke does here, and I want you to notice this in verse 50. Luke's gonna say, hey, things are never as they seem. It's never as black and white as you want it to be. There's not just good guys and bad guys, the right and the wrong. He says, in every pocket, God is raising up people that are seeking the ways of God. And I love this moment that the camera zooms in onto this kind of unexpected character, this guy named Joseph. And Luke introduces him this way. He says, there's this guy named Joseph who was a part of the very group that had just condemned Jesus to death the day before. This group that had plotted this out, he says, but here's the difference. He says, Joseph, he was not like them. He says, he was a good man who did not consent. Literally, he had not voted to have Jesus put to death like the rest had. He had not consented to their decision or their action. Luke says, I want you to see this. Followers of Jesus are springing up in the most unexpected places. Have you ever noticed that? That the kingdom of God never grows where you expect it to grow. <laughs> and I love this moment where, where, where Joseph is, is coming into the scene. This moment of tragedy is bringing him out in boldness. It keeps going like this. It says he had not consented to their decision or their action. He came from the Judean town of Arimathea. That was like 45 minutes north of Jerusalem. It'd be like saying he walked from Hendersonville into Nashville. 
Listen to this. And he himself was waiting. He was waiting on the kingdom of God. There's that word, waiting. He was waiting. He'd been waiting. Come on, God. Come on, God, do something, God. Come on, God, move. He'd been waiting. And just like the rest of the group, he was, he was waiting for deliverance. And the hope was seemingly destroyed on that Friday afternoon on Golgotha. He's waiting. It keeps going. Verse 52. This it's such a courageous picture, this guy here. I want you to notice this verse 52. It says, going to Pilate. Going to Pilate, he asked for Jesus' body. Now, I think sometimes in our context, we read that. It's just one little statement written in black and white on the thin pages of your little Bible. And it feels so distant and it feels so safe. But I want you to imagine this. Pilate was the guy that had just condemned and sentenced Jesus to death. Pilate was the guy that was in charge of the, the area that Jesus was in. And I want you to think about how much courage this would take. It would be like ISIS coming into our town, taking over the city. They kind of set up shop. They set up rule here. And they put somebody to death that you love and follow. Can you imagine going to the leader that had had the person sentenced to death saying, hey, not only am I standing against your decision, I'm with that guy. Can you imagine how scary it would have been for Joseph to march into the presence of Pilate? And to say, I'm with the one that you just deemed a traitor of the nation. I was on his side. I was on his team. So he went to Pilate and he asked for the body, verse 53. And then he took it down. And then he took it down. You know, in John's gospel, we're told that he had a friend there, another guy from the council named Nicodemus. It says that they went together to the cross to take the body of Jesus down. I don't know if you've ever tried to lift somebody up when they're completely asleep and they don't help you out, but it's not a very easy task. You know, I've got three little boys and they have like triple bunk beds in their room. They're pretty cool. You should look on Instagram. I put a picture there, but I built these, these bunk beds and sometimes they'll fall asleep at night and I have to like move them from one place to another. And, and it, is, it is an act to move them to the top bunk without killing them in the process. And I go, can you imagine doing this with a grown man? A grown man who's totally lifeless. Like, like we, make this, we make this so simple. He took the body down. But I want you to think about this. Jesus, he had been brutally beaten. He had been, he had been whipped. The flesh was torn off of his back. He had these nails that were the size of railroad ties driven through the, the bones in his wrist and through the top of his feet. Like he, he, had, he had bled, he had died. He was there like completely lifeless. And I don't know what the scene would look like, but just imagine Joseph borrows a ladder from uh, the soldiers there and he leans it up against the cross and he climbs up. And I want you to just picture, he, he takes one wrist at a time and just uh, picture the sound of flesh and bone being torn off a nail. And the blood running down and the bodily fluids and the weight of Jesus's dead body. Can you, can you imagine the, the weight of the one that spoke all things into existence, now laying in death, resting on your shoulder. And his skin, like, torn in ribbons on his back and blood pouring down. And just, just picture the scene. So they took his body down. They took his body down. It keeps going. Then they wrapped it in linen cloth. This is the way they'd prepare for burial. And they placed it in a tomb that had been cut out of a rock, one in which no one had been laid. And it was preparation day. The Sabbath was about to begin. There's this incredible moment where Joseph, this guy who had been living in the shadows of his faith, all of a sudden this moment of catastrophe happens and he steps out of the shadows into the, into the limelight and he identifies himself fully with the one that had just been crucified as an enemy of the state. But he keeps going, verse 56, look at this. It says, and then there were the women. 
I love this. I don't know if you've noticed this in the gospels, but the women, man, they were amazing. Like, like so often it, it was the guys that were running. The guys were cowards. The guys were denying. The guys were fearful. It was the women that were there at the cross, stood at the cross, cried at the cross, walked with them. It was the women that were, 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 were marked with courage because women have kind of always ruled the world. We all know that to be true. But here, here it is, this moment at the cross and the women are here. And it says they'd come with Jesus, verse 55, from Galilee following Joseph. And they saw the tomb and how his body was laid in it. And then they went home and they prepared spices and perfumes. But listen to this. But they rested on the Sabbath in obedience to the commandment. There's this moment in the waiting where most of Jesus' close friends, they ran, they scattered, they denied him. One took his own life. Uh, They went back to their jobs. They're terrified. But there's this little ragtag group of disciples who in this space between a promise made and a promise kept, they find themselves in the uncomfortable position of waiting on God to do what only God can do. And I love it because it's gonna be here in this this place of waiting that Luke is gonna give us a glimpse of what it looks like to wait faithfully on God, even when it seems like God has lost. And I want you to notice this. Let's start by looking at Joseph. First thing I want you to see is what does it look like? What does it look like to, to wait on God? In a season when it feels like God is lost, number one, it looks like clinging to, wrapping your arms around the real Jesus. It looks like wrapping your arms around the real Jesus. And all throughout Jesus' life and ministry, he was constantly trying to tell the disciples what to expect. Do you remember that moment in Mark chapter eight? Peter confesses Jesus as the Messiah. He says, you're the Messiah, you're the one that we've been waiting on. And Jesus says, you've got it right. You know my identity. He says, but here's the deal. He says, you understand my purpose and my power, but you've misunderstood the path that I have to travel as the Messiah. He says, this is what it looks like to be the Messiah. He says, I'm gonna go into Jerusalem. I'm gonna be rejected. I'm gonna be beaten. I'm gonna be killed. And on the third day, I'm gonna rise back to life. And he says, and anybody that wants to be my followers, you have to go on this journey as well. The disciples, they they, they couldn't get their head around it. In fact, I love it. You get into Mark chapter nine, just six days later. And they're taken up onto the Mount of Transfiguration. They see Jesus in all of his glory. God the Father speaks to them audibly. He says, this is my son. Listen to what he's telling you. And Jesus turns to them in that moment. He says, here's the deal. We're coming down from the mountain. We're going into Jerusalem for me to be crowned as Messiah, but it's gonna be different than you expect. They're gonna reject me. They're gonna beat me. They're gonna crucify me. I'm gonna die. And on the third day, I'm gonna raise from the dead. And there's this awesome moment in Mark 9, right after Jesus says that to them plainly, The disciples turn to one another and they say, I wonder what he means by rising from the dead. (laughs) They didn't have a framework to understand it. It, It'd be like a politician coming to you and saying, hey, listen, I'm running for president. And if you'll just stick with me, when I become president, I'm going to put you on the cabinet and give you a place of honor. And you're like, yeah, I'm down for that. And there's that moment where the election is coming and this person that's running for the election says, hey, when we go into DC next week, they're going to kill me. But on the third day, I'm going to rise from the dead. And you and I would do exactly what the disciples did. We'd go, okay, I wonder what he mean, means by death. Like, okay, he's gonna go in and there's gonna be a scandal and the media is gonna crucify him. And for three days, it's gonna seem like the election's toast, but on Monday, we're gonna spin it. Like, they, they had no box. They had no framework for understanding that the path to victory came on the road to, of defeat. They had no framework for what does it look like to embrace a God that's willing to lose? Because that's what the cross was. The cross was this moment of unbelievable defeat. And the disciples, they had spent their whole life 
celebrating a, a version of the Messiah that was not actually the Messiah. So when the real Messiah showed up, they didn't know what to do in the moment of waiting. But I love this because Joseph here in this space between a promise made and a promise kept, he, he wraps his arms quite literally around the real Jesus in all, of the play, in all of the pain, in all of the blood, in all of the death, in all of the loss. And he lays them down in the tomb and he says, I don't know where this is going, but I somehow believe God is big enough for even this. And I go, what, what does it look like? What's it look like to be faithful when you're in between a promise made and a promise kept? A part of it comes with us setting our eyes on the real Jesus. And I think this is a challenge because we live in America, or most of us are from America. And the challenge with Americans is we love aspects of Jesus, but most of us don't love the real Jesus. We love the victorious Jesus. We, we love the safe Jesus. We love the really smart, kind of wise, make your life better Jesus. But we don't like the version of Jesus that says, the way to victory is through defeat. And if you want to be my disciples, you follow me. And so when they found themselves in that place between a promise made and a promise kept, when the weight of waiting came down on them, most of them ran, but Joseph said, I'm going to hold on tighter because he'd taken hold of the real Jesus. What do we do in the waiting? Well, part of it is we hold on to the real Jesus. But the second thing that I want you to see is what the women did. And it's in the season of waiting that you cling to this absurd reality of obedience. You cling to this absurd reality of obedience. Look at verse 56 with me. It's so powerful. I don't know if you memorize scripture. I challenge you to memorize this one verse. It's so subversive. And maybe it will do in your heart what it's been doing in my heart over the last few weeks. It's just been turning me over. It says, but they rested on the Sabbath, listen, in obedience to the commandments. I go, if ever there was a moment to abandon the teachings of Jesus, wouldn't Saturday have been the moment? <laughs> like, like if ever there was a time to sow your wild oats, and to let your hair down a little, to let go of the things of God, wouldn't it have been the moment in between to keep the words of a man that had just been crucified feels so utterly absurd in our culture. But I love this picture of the women. They find themselves in this moment where they're between a promise made and a promise kept. They're there in this painful place of waiting. And what do they do? They keep walking in obedience to God. Even when obedience to God seems insane. You know, this is one of the things that I've learned in the context of parenting is that there are different levels of obedience. And the lowest form of obedience is the form of obedience that says, I will obey you only when it makes sense for me to obey you. That form of obedience, uh, don't hear me wrong, that's better than disobedience. But that form of obedience, it's the lowest level of obedience. Like when my kids come to me, I've got three boys and, and I'll tell them to do something. When they sit there and they barter with me, like tell me why, explain it. Like when they need to understand logically what's going on before they'll step into it, it's the lowest form of obedience. And I'm still glad they obey. But the truth is in those moments, they're not demonstrating trust and affection and love for me. They're just waiting until my commands line up with what they were already convinced to do. And here's the reality. If that's the only form of obedience that we understand, hey, I'll obey Jesus as long as obeying Jesus makes sense. The truth is Jesus isn't your Lord at that point. He's your yes man. And he's just there to confirm what you already wanted to do. But I love this picture that you see in Luke 23. It seems as though the, the hope and the life and the power of God has been crushed. And if ever there was a time to abandon the commandments, it's now. But there's a group of women 
He says on Saturday morning, they got up and in the stillness of their disappointment, they kept walking with God. <laughs> they kept obeying God. And I think this is so important like in the culture we live in right now. Like, like we, we live in this, this place where I think all of us deep down know that although we want to live for Easter Sunday, a lot of times life feels more like Holy Saturday. That life is filled with unfinished stories, with hope deferred. We know that the tomb of Jesus is empty, but our tombs are still filled. And we find ourselves in this uncomfortable place in the in-between, the, the, the waiting between the things that God has said he's going to do but the things that God has not yet quite done. And, and the question is, and what does it look like to be faithful in, in that space? And the truth is, uh, you know, our culture doesn't know what to do with the waiting. We hate it. We try to ignore it. We, we try to deny it. We try to hide from it. And most Christians don't know what to do with the waiting either. But I love this picture of the disciples in Luke 23, that when it seemed as though God had lost, they held more tightly to the Jesus that they knew to be Jesus. And they kept walking in obedience even when obedience didn't make sense. And then in due time, God did what only God could do. And I think we feel this as people on a personal level. You know, earlier this morning, I saw some of my friends here who, who just a few months ago, they had to bury their grandchild because the, the prayers weren't answered the way we wanted them to be answered. And they know that Jesus' tomb is empty. And they know that one day their grandchild's tomb will be empty. But right now it's Saturday. Today it's not. There's some of you, you feel that weight, that the disappointment, the disappointment of Good Friday has set in. And the divorce went through. You didn't want it to go through, but it went through. And now he's remarried and it feels even more final. And you feel the weight and you feel the pain of Saturday. And the, the truth is, life uh, for us as individuals, it is filled with Saturday moments. And so the hope of Christianity is not just celebrating that Sunday is coming. That's a big deal. But part of the hope of Christianity is learning how to walk out that hope in the middle of a Saturday morning. When we find ourselves in these in-between places of a promise kept, a promise made and a promise kept. Think about the way this is happening on a cultural level right now. You know, yesterday, millions of people marching. And there's very few things that our country agrees on right now. We're so divided, we're so polarized, but one of the things that we all seem to agree on is something needs to change. Something has to be addressed, and people don't know what to do with that, and, and what's the answer and how it works. But what we're watching right now in our culture is a whole country struggling with what it looks like to be a people in between. To be in between. We know things are not as they should be. And things are not as they hopefully will be in Christ. And people are yearning, going, well, what does it look like? And the culture is flailing about. But I believe Luke is saying, hey, there's another way. There's a guy named Joseph. There are a couple of women. And in that in-between in in space, when everybody else is running, when everybody else is quitting, when everybody else is yelling, when everybody's going back to things as normal, there were a couple of women. <laughs> and there was a guy that used to be on the wrong team. <laughs> and they showed up in the moment. They held on to Jesus and they kept obeying. And the Lord showed them what the Lord needed to show them. And I, go, I, I believe the way out is different than our, our culture wants it to be. And Jesus says, come on. 
says, come on. And I know some of you, like right now, you're in a Saturday moment. I just want to encourage you for a second. Like some of you, you have been crushed. The prayers don't feel answered. The circumstances haven't been changed. The power of God feels dead and lifeless in a tomb. And here's what I want you to hear. You're not alone in your Saturday moments. I remember years ago going through kind of this crisis of faith and I was just struggling with what I believed and and how all of it fit together and I didn't know how all all the dots connected and I just was convinced in my mind that nobody else was wrestling with the stuff that I was wrestling with. I remember going home and my my dad, I guess he could just pick up on some of the stuff that I was struggling with. I'll never forget. He said, Dave, I've been there before. And just something about him saying that, like, hey, me too, I've been in it. Like, man, it just, it, it set me free. But I'll never forget what he said. He said, Dave, sometimes the distance between Friday and Sunday lingers longer than you want it to. I'll never forget that. He says, sometimes the Saturday moment lingers longer than you want it to. And you just need to hear that. Like some of you, you are facing real pain, real grief, real depression, real anxiety, real heartache, real struggle. It feels like Jesus is dead in the tomb and you need to hear you're not alone on your Saturday mornings. And secondly, God is not done with you yet. You know, on that Saturday morning, on the surface, it seemed like everything was over. The crowds had left. Jesus was in the tomb. But I love it. The Bible goes on to tell us that underneath the surface, heaven was rewriting history. <laughs> like heaven was changing the story. And I love this. Like God has this way of bringing about the most glorious things in the most unexpected moments. And it looked like the story was done, but it wasn't. It wasn't because Sunday was coming. But on Saturday, it feels like he's done. (laughs) You just need to know if you're in a Saturday space, you're not alone and he's not done. And this is a place where you can live that out in community. I think sometimes in our Instagram culture, in our Southern Bible Belt culture, you even come into a place like this and we convince ourselves that faith is all about Resurrection Sunday. And that's where it's headed. But did you know the scriptures are full of people that were sitting in the pain of Holy Saturday? And you're not alone. Keep clinging to Jesus. Keep walking in obedience. He'll lead you out. For those of you that are not in Saturday morning currently, I just want to give you a word of encouragement. The Jesus you cling to right now really matters. (laughs) Because when Saturday comes... Any other version of Jesus will let you down. I think sometimes it's easy to to cling to uh, the the Jesus, the play it safe Jesus, the American Jesus. A lot of us don't even realize we've done this. We've taken the American dream and we've put Jesus' clothes on it. And then we're so frustrated why Jesus doesn't lay down his life to give us the American dream. Jesus says, no, here's the deal. He says, my path to glory is gonna be a path that will encounter pain and suffering. There'll be a moment when I'm laying in a tomb and it seems like all is lost. And he says, and your path is the same one. And the Jesus we cling to in in these moments really matters. I just wanna challenge you. Like, don't just read the Bible, soak it up. Digest it, live it out, wrestle with it, question it. Like, look at the Christ that's presented in scriptures because the Jesus that's presented in the gospels is so different than the Jesus we tend to tout in our trite kind of way of doing Christianity together at times. And only the real Jesus gets you through the pain of Saturday mornings. So for those of you that are not in Saturday, I don't don't wanna discourage you, but here's the truth. Saturdays are coming. This is what Jesus said, John 16, verse 33. In this world, you will have what? Trouble. He says, as long as you're in the world, 
you're going to have trouble. He says, but take heart. I've overcome the world. You know, this is what Joseph and the women got to experience. They got to experience the full freight of Psalm 23. Do you remember Psalm 23? I love the first part of Psalm 23. I hate the second half of Psalm 23. The first part is, the Lord is my shepherd. I have everything that I need. We love that part. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside the still waters. He restores my soul. He guides my feet in paths of righteousness for the sake of his name. And if Psalm 23 ended there, we're like, yes. That's the most American psalm ever. Like if you stop at the first path, you know, he gives you all that you need. He blesses you. He takes care of you. He makes you rest. Early retirement, you're like, I love Psalm 23. But what's the very next part of it? Even when I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you're with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil, my cup overflows. I go, I hate that part of the psalm. I don't want God to be with me in the valley of the shadow of death. I want God to take me above the valley of the shadow of death. I want the gospel to be my ticket out of pain and out of hardship and out of suffering and out of confusion. I want the gospel to be the, the end around of the Saturday morning, but that's not what the gospel is. The promise of Christ is not the escape from pain. It's the presence of God in the middle of pain. And until we understand that, that's not what I want Psalm 23 to say. Even as I begin to walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you take me out of it. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my friends because you've crushed my enemies. <laughs> now Jesus says, this is the way it goes. This is the way it goes. And there will be moments when you find yourself standing between a promise made and a promise that has yet to be fulfilled. And it will seem as though the life of God has been snuffed out the day before. And you have to decide which Jesus to hold on to. See, I love this because this is the call of discipleship. The call of discipleship is not just to believe in Jesus. I know that sounds like heresy to some of you, but even the demons believed in Jesus. If, if just believing Jesus existed made you a disciple, all of hell is gonna be filled with disciples. The call of discipleship is not just to believe. It's not just to affirm or to celebrate some things that happen. The call of discipleship out of Matthew verse, uh, chapter four, verse 19 is you get out of the boat, you come and follow me and I'll make you into something that you're not. Jesus says, you follow me. You go where I go, you do what I do, you think as I think, you live as I live. Jesus never one time said, you watch me go to the cross and you sit in the comfort of your church and then you celebrate for me that I did it. He says, no, you follow me. You follow me. And Jesus says, you will watch me lay there on a Saturday morning and it seems like God is done, but just wait. Because Sunday's coming. And a part of the experience of discipleship is not just the pain of Friday, but the confusion of Saturday and the hope that Sunday is just around the corner. So my prayer for us is, is that as a community, we, we would become a, a safe space to hold on to the real Jesus and to keep walking in obedience, even when obedience feels absurd, when a culture is looking at us and going, man, that Jesus stuff is dead. Where's God at in the midst of all of this to say, I don't exactly know how it's all gonna work out, but we know the end of the story and we don't know what it's gonna look like as we get there. But in the meantime, we'll hold on to Christ as he is and we'll obey him for who he is.
and we'll trust, we'll trust that he'll raise us back to life. God, I love you. Thank you for these people. God, thank you for the, the gift of being in a space like this. God, I thank you for the, the ups and the downs and the struggles. I thank you for the people in this room that find themselves right now in a spiritual Saturday. And Lord, I, I would ask that um, you would do uh, in them what you were doing in these women and in Joseph, that you'd give them this resolve to keep holding on to you, to keep obeying you, to keep walking with you, even if it doesn't make sense. God, for the rest of us, I, I pray that we would have this deep understanding that this is just part of life with you. And so when we see people around us going through it, that we don't try to push them through it quickly. We don't try to microwave their pain and get them onto the good stuff. God, only you can resurrect that which has been dead. And God, I pray that you'd give us the, the ability and the patience and the grace to sit down in the heartache, to sit down in the Saturday morning, to sit down in the in-between, that space between a promise made and a promise kept. And that in the middle of the waiting, you'd fill us with life and with hope and with joy. Uh, God, would you help us to know you as you really are? Uh, I just keep thinking about the words of Galatians 5, 19. Would you do whatever it takes for the fullness of Jesus to be formed fully in us? Uh, God, would you do that in our church? Would you do that in our churches spread across the city, the country, and the world? In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen.